Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Disability Rights Connecticut, or DRC, filed a lawsuit to prevent mentally ill prisoners from being confined at Northern Correctional Institute in Somers. Just days after the filing, Governor Neil Lamont announced that the State Department of Correction would permanently shut down the Supermax prison. The lawsuit alleges that over-reliance on solitary confinement and in-cell shackling placed mentally ill inmates at risk of severe harm. Aided by the state chapter of the ACLU and Yale Law School's Lowenstein International Human Rights Law Clinic, DRC's suit claims that the conditions at Northern are horrible for most prisoners and much worse for those with mental illnesses. The suit alleges that conditions at the prison exacerbate the suffering of incarcerated people with mental illnesses in a way that violates the Americans with Disabilities Act. Deborah Dorfman, DRC's executive director, said, quote, Nobody should be subjected to degrading and inhumane confinement, especially those whose behavior can only be addressed by treatment and rehabilitation, not humiliation and infliction of mental and physical pain and disability discrimination. Prisoner support groups have tried for years to close the prison, which has a disproportionately high number of incarcerated people of color, with 84% of the current population being either Black or Latinx. This week on KiteLine, we speak with prison abolitionist journalists Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law. We share the first part of our discussion of their recent book, Prison by Any Other Name, Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms. The book is an in-depth look at the various alternatives to prison that are held up as substitutes for jails and prisons, but in many cases bring surveillance into our homes and communities. The alternatives mentioned in our discussion today, electronic monitoring, probation, court-mandated psychiatric confinement or assisted outpatient treatment, and the sex offender registry, are just a few of the methods outlined in their book. Here they are. My name is Victoria Law. I am a freelance journalist and author that writes about issues of incarceration, particularly resistance and organizing in prisons and in women's prisons. I am the co-author of Prison by Any Other Name with Maya Shenwar and the author of a book called Prisons Make Us Safer and 20 Other Myths About Mass Incarceration. Hi, I'm Maya Shenwar, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Truth Out, which is a social justice news website. And I've been writing and editing about the prison industrial complex for about 15 years. I'm the co-author of Prison by Any Other Name with Vicky, and I also wrote a book called Lockdown, Locked Out, why prison doesn't work and how we can do better. And I'm also involved in prison organizing efforts, abolitionist organizing efforts in Chicago. I organize with the collective Love and Protect and I co-founded the Chicago Community Bond Fund. So Maya and I, as 
journalists and prison abolitionists were watching a trend that was happening several years ago, back when Obama was president, where there was increasing recognition of the racial and economic impacts of mass incarceration. And it was being framed as uh, we need to dismantle mass incarceration, but we need something or some things to be put in its place. And those things were very similar to the underlying paradigms of mass incarceration. So there was this idea that there were too many people in prison. Uh, many people were being imprisoned for far too long for minor offenses and actions such as nonviolent drug possession or nonviolent drug use. And at the same time, there was this idea that rather than letting people out of prison and giving them support to rebuild their lives, we needed to have alternatives to prison that looked very much like prisons themselves. So these were alternatives such as electronic monitoring in which you were confined to your home for set periods of time, not allowed to leave without prior permission and having the threat of being sent back to prison always hanging over your head. In other words, moving this idea of imprisonment and confinement and surveillance and punishment from the physical jail or prison into our homes and our communities. And at the same time, we are also seeing the creep of criminalization happening in other types of institutions, such as schools and foster care agencies and child welfare agencies, institutions that are not supposed to be punitive, but increasingly operated on punitive logics. And we wanted to write a book that showed that we should not be relying on these alternatives to prison that simply create more prisons or prison-like conditions for people without addressing the underlying causes, because otherwise what we would end up seeing were reforms that looked like prisons, expanded the carceral state into our homes and our communities without actually addressing any of these underlying issues and would then be institutions we would then be battling to dismantle 10, 15, 20 years from now. You use the term prison is a reform. Could we start by like maybe explaining what you meant by that? Sure. So prison itself was initially introduced, prison in the form that we know it, was introduced as a supposed solution to the problem of physical punishment. So corporal punishment, capital punishment. Prison was introduced by Christian reformers and other people who were positing in the late 18th and early 19th century, this idea that instead of those things, instead of beating someone or killing someone for what they did, often for very small offenses, you would have this place where people would be sent and they would supposedly be sitting there reflecting or finding God or realizing the error of their ways. And then they would come out somehow rehabilitated. And this was advocated actually by a lot of pacifist Christian communities like Mennonites and Quakers who later have kind of renounced it. In fact, some Quaker groups are now explicitly prison abolitionists and are saying those things we were saying 200 years ago, actually not the case at all. So when we talk about the idea of reform, 
I think sometimes it's seen as something that's automatically better, automatically more progressive, automatically the direction that we should be going. But actually reform just means a change. And the new types of prisons that we are talking about being created in this book, prisons like home confinement or lockdown drug treatment centers or psychiatric hospitals and civil commitment wards, all of those things, I think we need to be approaching in that way. We can't just equate the word reform with a positive transformation. One other thing I would add is a quote by Angela Davis, who asked, does it make sense to call for more reforms to these failed institutions that began as reforms? So I think that when we're thinking of reforms to our prison system, we should keep that in mind and not continue to try to tinker with an institution that has proven again and again and again to be a massive failure. Can you guys talk a little bit about the role of probation and the way that it's changed over the years? Sure. So we have to think about the fact that probation is seen as an alternative to incarceration. And many people, if not the majority of people, would prefer to be on probation in which they are kept out of jail and out of prison than in jail or in prison. But probation itself comes with so many onerous demands that it makes it fairly impossible to be able to abide by and becomes a pathway itself into prison, not because people are engaging in harmful or illegal activity, but because they are unable to follow the myriad rules and regulations and demands that probation places on them. 15% of the prison population had previously been on probation prior to their prison sentence. For listeners who don't know, when you are on probation, you are subject to all sorts of rules and regulations that a person who is not on any sort of confinement would be subjected to. So you could have a curfew. You could be required to go to AA meetings or NA meetings. You have to check in with your probation officer during business hours or during working hours, which means that if you have a nine to five job, uh, you have to take off from work to go meet with your probation officer. You have to have housing that is specifically approved by that probation officer which means that you cannot just get up and move if you are in unsafe or unstable housing of any kind. And all of your movement is regulated. And we have to remember that when we're talking about probation, there are currently 3.6 million people on probation. That is 1.4 or 1.5 million more than people in physical jails and prisons. So it's a way to expand the carceral system into our homes and communities without providing any of the bare minimum basics, such as, say, food or a slab that you call a bed that jails and prisons provide. And it doesn't make us safer. The conservative think tank, the Brookings Institution, actually found that the more intense supervision a person is under, the greater their chances are of recidivism. And many times, I want to add, not because somebody's engaging in harmful or illegal activities, but because it is too easy to slip up and say, not be able to get home by curfew or miss an appointment or fail an alcohol test or fail a drug test. And these are things that would not be penalized 
unless the person was on supervision. But again and again, we see that probation is being touted as an alternative to incarceration for some people convicted or facing some criminal charges, usually charges that don't involve violence or harm to other people, but it places them on this slip and slide, as it were, where they could very easily slide into incarceration simply for trying to live their lives. I echo everything Vicky said, and I would just add briefly, so I think it's about 10 or a little bit more percent of people who are incarcerated are women, but a quarter of people on probation are women, and that number has gone up and up and up over the last couple of decades, and women face a higher risk of violating probation, and of course, Black women are predominantly targeted because the restrictive terms of probation often conflict with caregiving responsibilities. And probation is so much about taking up your time, your energy, with this very, very long list of restrictions and requirements. Sometimes the number of requirements is in the high teens, sometimes more than 20. And people who have already all kinds of requirements in their lives besides work. So caregiving not only for children, but also for elders and other people in the family. Often these things are not taken into consideration when it comes to evaluating how someone is doing on probation, whether they're meeting their requirements. And so very often, um, People are reincarcerated, women are reincarcerated, and are also, of course, disproportionately on probation in comparison with the number of women who are incarcerated, if that makes sense. One of the things that you touch on is court-ordered programs for people with mental illness and psychiatric hospitals, as well as AOTs, assisted outpatient treatments. Can you both talk a little bit about why these are not necessarily like adequate alternatives and some of the issues that might surround them? So mandated psychiatric programs and court-ordered psychiatric commitment it operates on this replacement logic of having to put somebody in what prison abolitionist Miriam Kaba calls somewhere else, which is you remove them from the community, from their families, from whatever support they have, even if it is imperfect, and you put them someplace where people cannot see them or have to deal with them, and perhaps more, more significantly, don't have to be reminded of all the systemic failures of this country and this government and these local governments to be able to provide adequate care, treatment, and support for people who are going through mental health issues or mental health crises. I want to you know, note that sometimes people need help and we don't have universal health care or universal mental health care. So they try to figure out what to do. They go to the hospital or to the doctor seeking support and can end up locked up in psychiatric confinement 
for either a short period of time, like a 72-hour emergency hold, if somebody goes to a doctor or an emergency room and professes anything that seems like it might be suicidal ideation, or for a longer period of time, if a doctor or medical professional thinks that they might be a danger to themselves or other people. And people who are forcibly confined find themselves in conditions that are very similar to imprisonment for criminal charges. They lose their bodily autonomy. They're told when to get up, when to go to sleep, you know, whether they can see their family, who in their family they can see, when to eat, when to take their medications. They're not given a choice in whether to take these medications. Uh, they can be physically punished, including being restrained and being placed in isolation or a small room with a door that only opens from the outside for not obeying rules or not following orders. And many times, instead of receiving the support and help they need, psychiatric confinement ends up punishing people for being in these places or for needing help in the first place. So this means that people might not be receiving counseling or therapy or anything else that they actually need to address their issues, but instead they're being forcibly locked down, forcibly medicated, being ordered around during the day, and not really having the root causes of their trauma or their mental health needs addressed. And we have to remember that approximately 22,000 people are involuntarily committed state psychiatric hospitals and civil commitment centers. And unlike many prison sentences, with the exception of life without parole uh, sentences, there's no determined release date, which means that it's not that a doctor says, okay, you spend two weeks in this psychiatric confinement and then you'll be able to be released, or you spend two months or two years. There's no end date in sight. So you're, oh, you're there indefinitely, and it is all dependent on a medical professional to say whether or not they believe that you can be released. And at the same time, this does nothing to address the larger fact, as I mentioned earlier, that we don't live in a society that has robust mental health care that does not have support for people who are going through mental health issues or mental health crises, or even necessarily go through periods where they might need support, but that support doesn't need to be a locked room or a locked ward. I agree with all of that. And I just wanted to add, in addition to lockdown psychiatric confinement, we've also seen a real expansion of what's called assisted outpatient treatment for people with psychiatric diagnoses. And these programs are mandated outpatient mental health treatment. And there was a rush of funding for these programs a few years ago. It's one of those things where there is like a bipartisan push in Congress. Everyone in the mainstream supported it. The American Psychiatric Association supported it. Other big national mainstream mental health organizations. And so we've now got this compulsory outpatient treatment in, I believe, almost every state in the country. But there's no support for the idea that it quote unquote works, even if you're using the system's own standards to evaluate it. And there have been a number of studies about this. And there was one in The Lancet that said there was actually no support for compulsory outpatient treatment in terms of it actually helping people in living their lives in a fulfilling way 
or, you know, any of those kind of standard evaluations of mental health. And the study also pointed out the really serious ways in which forcing someone into psychiatric treatment is violating some of their basic rights, even if you're not sticking them in an institution. And it's also another form of social control and racial control. I think we have to look at the ways in which diagnoses are not simply these unbiased scientific categories, but they're actually driven by racism, driven by misogyny. We see a very disproportionate diagnosis of schizophrenia among Black people just because of the way those communities have been targeted. We also see more diagnoses of things like borderline personality disorder among women. And I could go on and on just looking at the way that diagnosis itself becomes a racialized and gendered weapon and in some ways diagnosis and this is not always the case but in some cases diagnosis actually parallels labels like criminal convictions and so i think when when we look at these assisted outpatient treatments we have to see it in that light like forcing someone to do something in response to a diagnosis that they've been given is not simply helping them. And I'll just mention a real quick example. So one person that we talked to for our book was a mental health service user and a mental health provider. And she talked about her experience where she worked for one of these compulsory outpatient programs that diverted people from jail. And she spoke really frankly about the fact that the consequence for not abiding by the terms and the rules of this outpatient program was jail. And so how could she do any kind of counseling that was collaborative, which is the only kind of counseling that actually works, when there was this threat of jail hanging over the person's head? So that's that's kind of a reality that we have to grapple with when we think about this quote-unquote alternative. When we think about people on the sex offender registry, it's often in the context of fear-mongering because people want to feel safe. And the sex offender registry, much like prisons and other types of confinement gives people a false sense of security. Like, oh, if we know who is on the sex offender registry, then we know, you know, then we can protect ourselves and our children and our families. When in reality, children and adults are more likely to be assaulted by people that they know, including family members and trusted community members, than they are by strangers. But the sex offender registry feeds into this idea that the bulk of sexual danger comes from the stranger in a bush or the stranger with a white van. There are 900,000 people on the sex offender registry as of 2018. In some states, you are placed on it and it is nearly impossible to get off of it. And for listeners who are thinking, well, what's the matter with putting people on the sex offender registry? I want myself, my loved ones, my children, my neighbor's children to be safe. We have to remember that people can be placed on the sex offender registry for a variety of reasons. It does not do anything to identify people who have caused sexual 
sexual harm or who are in danger of causing more sexual harm. Instead, it stigmatizes and it isolates people. And like all things related to criminalization, incarceration, and now these alternatives to incarceration, it disproportionately affects Black, Brown, and other marginalized people. We gave some examples in our book. One of the examples we gave was that of a man named Robert Suttle, a Black gay man living in Louisiana who was HIV positive. And he was placed on the sex offender registry under Louisiana's HIV criminalization law after an ex-boyfriend went to the police and complained that Suttle had not disclosed his HIV status to him during their relationship. Suttle went to court. He ultimately pled guilty, thinking that he was going to be on probation. He got to the probation officer and then found out that he had to be on the sex offender registry. And this meant then that his world suddenly shrunk into basically what was not allowed. Suddenly he had to, when at, wherever he went, he had to inform and register with the sex offender registry. Different states and different jurisdictions have rules about where you can and cannot live. You cannot live near a school. It doesn't matter if your supposed sex offense has nothing to do with children. You cannot live you know, near a daycare center. You may not be able to live near a church or a community center. Uh, in some places they require... Uh, law enforcement to notify everybody in your vicinity that you are a sex offender. And for Robert Settle, this also meant notifying everybody in his immediate vicinity that he was also HIV positive. So it outed him in that way. Having this disclosed does not give context. It basically just says a sex offender has moved into your neighborhood and is on XYZ street. And this is his name and this is his picture. And it doesn't say, well, this is the context for why this person is on the registry. So it creates a fear and a stigmatization for people. It does not allow them to be able to rebuild their lives. And in many cases, this leaves people who are on the registry with very few options of where to live, where they might be able to rebuild their lives. In one place in, I believe it was Miami, the only place where people on the registry could live was basically under a bridge because they could not live near other places. And again, this does nothing to keep people safe. With 900,000 people on the sex offender registry, you would think we would have abolished sexual abuse and sexual assault. But this is, again, not the case for our country. And then for people who are parents, this also means that they may not be able to go to their children's school to go pick them up. They may not be able to participate in any of their children's extracurricular activities. They may not be able to allow their children to have their friends come over because those are the children of other people. Their addresses are often published on the registry, which puts themselves and their families in immediate danger. We interviewed one woman who had married a man who was on the sex offender registry. You know, as part of his being on the registry, she had to sign an agreement that said she would never leave her husband alone with their children, uh, with her children from a previous relationship, which she did. But because he was on the sex offender registry and people did not want a registered sex offender in their neighborhood, child welfare officials started getting calls alleging that there was abuse happening in the house. And so they were visited again and again and again by child welfare officials following up on bogus calls by neighbors and residents who simply wanted to harass the family out of the neighborhood. This did nothing to make anybody safer. It basically just meant that the family was undergoing all sorts of scrutiny and harassment and surveillance. And then when the couple's relationship turned abusive or when 
the husband turned abusive towards her and she sought to flee. It meant that child welfare was already familiar with her household and had a long list of complaints that had been filed against her family. And none of that did anything to keep her or her children safe and instead ensnared her in the child welfare system even more. So for children or other family members of people on the sex offender registry, basically they also live with the stigma and the harassment and the isolation and sometimes the violence that happens when people realize that their neighbors or a fellow resident is on that registry. Thank you to Maya and Victoria for speaking with us. Law's been on the show before, discussing women's resistance behind bars and carceral feminism. We'll have the links to those episodes on our new searchable website, kitelineradio.org. We'll hear the rest of this conversation next week. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.